We're embarking upon a series in Exodus this semester. We're calling it Being Known and Living Free. We've called it that because really, you know, that's what Exodus is about. Put in simplest terms, uh, the book chronicles the Israelites' miraculous escape from Egypt uh, when they were enslaved by a God named Yahweh who knows them and longs to be known by them. This is not just, you know, I will say, this is not just someone else's obscure story. This is not just the Israelite story. Uh, it is actually our story, if we were in Christ. It's how God provided for our spiritual grandparents uh, by the blood of Jesus. Uh, everyone who puts their faith in Jesus is part of a covenant people that God uh, has uh, put his love upon and cares for. And according to Hebrews 13, 8, uh, God is the same yesterday and today and forever. How he treated his people in the past is how he longs to continue to treat them. He continues to love and know us in the same ways. And so uh, while we in this room, as far as I know, are not physically enslaved uh, people uh, in the same way as the Israelites, we all do, I think, long for freedom. Uh, from the weight of things like pleasing people, from addictions, from loneliness, freedom from anxiety or depression. And in tonight's passage, Exodus 1, uh, we truly begin right our own story of redemption. So let's read it together. Uh, this, is, uh, Gen- uh, this is Exodus 1. It says this, These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly, and they multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh's store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service and mortar and brick and all kinds of work in the fields and all their work. They ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua, some unfortunate names there, uh, sorry, uh, don't translate well. Uh, when you serve, is it, uh, how come you guys don't name your children Shifra and Pua anymore? Um, team Shifra and Pua. Okay. When you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if, it's a, if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwife said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Uh, Let's pray. 
Uh, oh Lord, I just ask uh, that you would simply met, uh, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. All right. Uh, I don't know how many of you guys have ever seen this movie uh, because it was big in my generation, but I think it's you guys have probably seen it too. But judging by this, maybe I don't know as well. Uh, the Sandlot. If y'all, is that still like a movie people watch? Okay. So The Sandlot, one of my all-time favorite movies, there's this scene, right? If you haven't seen it, there's this scene where a kid named Smalls is invited to play baseball by a kid named Benny. It's with a bunch of neighborhood kids. The only problem for Smalls is that he has never played baseball a day in his life. Uh, he's terrible at it. He has a big hat that like goes out and Benny's like, hey, before you come tomorrow, if you have a fireplace, throw that hat in it. Uh, right? Benny is the best player in the neighborhood. And he, as soon as Smalls gets there, he hits a routine pop fly over to him, just like, hey, he'll catch it, hits it over. And he, like, trying to catch it, stumbles over himself and literally, like, does, like, a backflip and, like, it lands on his head. And everyone laughs at him. He looks like a fool. And then Benny, like, runs out to him in the outfield. And he says, you know, man, this is baseball. You got to stop thinking. Just have fun. I mean, if you were having fun, you would have caught that ball. And then Benny tells him, you know, calm, calm down. But Smalls can't help himself. Uh, he sheepishly asks, like, okay, like, how do, I, how do I catch it, though? You know, how do I catch it? And Benny replies, I just want you to stand there, stick your glove up in the air, and I'll take care of the rest, right? And Benny runs back to home plate, takes a deep breath, hits the ball again to him, right? And uh, Smalls sits there, eyes closed, like, just repeating the phrase, like, please catch it. Please catch it. Please catch it. And what ends up happening, right? Smack right into the glove. Benny has hit like just the best hit anyone has ever hit, right? Smalls is able, with the point that I'm making is Smalls is able to play, to experience the freedom and the joy of the game of baseball, right? Because he trusts Benny. At the end of the day, he puts his faith in Benny to hit that glove from home plate. And he says, this is, I hope I get to play. I hope I get to exercise you know, my freedom, uh, be in relationship with people. And I'm, I'm just going to step out in faith or maybe hold a hand up in faith, uh, that Benny can come through for me. He knew as grim as things might be for his own skills, he had someone greater on his side than his own weakness. And I could say this, we have that same joy and confidence. If this story is our story, right? There's really three things about this story about how we can put our faith in God and what happens if we do that, uh, that allows us to be free. So uh, here's the three points we're really going to look at. We can find freedom in the midst of oppression because three things, God's people start oppressed. Number two, God picks unlikely heroes. And number three, God's plans cannot be thwarted. All right, so we can find freedom in the midst of oppression for those three reasons. We'll go through them one at a time. But let's start at our first point, right? We can find freedom in the midst of oppression because God's people start oppressed. Uh, before you can be freed, right, the point that I, I would make is that you've got to be enslaved, right? Before you can be a free person, you've got to be enslaved. So let's start by looking at what form slavery takes. Look at me at verses 1 through 8. Look at me at verses 1 through 8. Um, Exodus, if you don't know, it's actually one of like a five volume series in the Bible called the Pentateuch. And it tells, you know, one story from the beginning to the end. And Moses is its author. 
And this opening section functions kind of as a bridge between Genesis and Exodus. It actually kind of recaps the first or the last 15 or so chapters of Genesis where Joseph is the main kind of the main character, uh, the main human character. In, in verses one through five, we learn that Joseph and all his brothers are present in Egypt. Right. This recaps the story. Uh, Joseph had to go down there to save everybody from a uh, plague. He gets sold actually into slavery and God's very providential in all of it. But right, all the brothers come down and they have to escape a plague in Egypt. Then we're told in verse seven that God has made good on a promise that he made to these brothers. And actually they're like great grandfather, uh, Abraham, uh, in Genesis 12. Right? God had said that he will multiply these families and that he's going to actually turn them into these uh, you know, 12 brothers. He's going to turn them into 12 tribes of a nation called Israel. And uh, we see that that's all actually come to pass. But sadly, in verse 8, we're then told that this group who were so prized by the Egyptians, right, that I said Joseph saved everybody from a, uh, a famine, right? These guys who were so prized... They've now slipped into harsh slavery, right? Uh, about 400 years passes in the turn of a page. Uh, if you go from the last chapter of Genesis to the first chapter of Exodus, right? In those like few verses, it says that, uh, you know, essentially 400 years passes and a, you know, over time, Joseph's generation dies off. New kings of Egypt take their throne. And one in particular here in verse 8 he no longer has any idea who Joseph is. I get this picture in my head, you know, the, the Avengers where he's like, I don't even know who you are. Like this is, that's that King, right? He's like, I don't even know who Joseph is. Get out of here. Uh, right. And this Pharaoh has become threatened by the 12 tribes of Israel uh, by verse nine, right? He says, behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. And this, you know, here, here's the a point I want to uh, make. That, that makes sense that he would feel threatened. Uh, for a couple of reasons. In Genesis 1 and 2, God commands all of, humanity, all of humanity to do two things, to be fruitful and multiply, and then to subdue the earth, right? In other words, to cultivate the earth in such a way that God himself can come and live amongst people in a city, right? In the Garden of Eden being the first city, the, the major, you know, God city, and, and where God was going to take up residence and live with his people, um, Basically, as Israel carries those things out, they are going to become a threat to the surrounding world. It's not surprising that Egypt feels that way. In verse 7, we find out that they've been very good at multiplying. And you take that combined with the situation found in verses 9 through 11 here, right, where their allegiance is not to any earthly power. And when you make a people who have no allegiances to any earthly power, combined with them getting bigger and bigger in number, and you're the nation that's currently in control of the land that they're living on, this is a problem, right? This is actually a problem. You've got to do something about it. And so look at verses uh, 10 through 11, right? Pharaoh decides we do have to do something about it. The Pharaoh is so threatened by the mere existence of the Israelites that he actually tries to oppress the sexual instinct out of them. I don't know if you picked up on that, right? It's that what he's trying to do is if I can work you so bad that you actually can't multiply. Like what I'm going to try and do is make you so tired at the end of the day that none, that none of you want to have sex. That's truly like his, his strategy. And uh, maybe they'll be too tired and we can, we can avoid them overtaking us. Uh, and uh, it's made extra terrible by the object of their labor. Look at verse 11. 
Look at verse 11, what, what he has them do to tire them out. They have to build Pharaoh's store cities, Pithom and Ramses, right? Where they, uh, they're made, right? If we take this uh, in conjunction with Genesis, and we should, they, people are made to build a city for God, for him to live in, for them to celebrate who he is and where he is in their life. And instead of doing that, they're literally making cities for the people of Egypt to store their, their wealth, right? And in particular, Pharaoh to store his goods. When all this fails in verse 12, Pharaoh takes it to the point of trying to commit like mass genocide covertly. Right? The p- two points of application here, two things that we can kind of gather from like what it looks like to start uh, in, a, in a moment of oppression for God's people to start in this way, to, uh, to, for that to be a given about being part of God's people. I'll say this first, as we go about our obedience I will say this, we should not be surprised when we come in conflict with what the world values. Let me say that again. If we go about our obedience, if we're obeying God, you should not be surprised if you come into some amount of conflict with what the world values. Uh, I say this not as like, oh, you know, this one-off situation. I'm saying that like there's actually only ever been one really good person on earth and we crucified him. Right, that we naturally come into conflict when God can be so sure that uh, that we can't actually handle somebody who just does Him in His ways that He loves and obeys that He can send Him and know they'll kill Him. Right, if I send somebody down on Earth who actually is like me, they'll kill Him. Right, uh, Jesus is the prime example, and the Bible calls this oppression, and it and should be part of knowing God. Right, that we walk as we walk on earth, that we are going to, on some level, come into tension with the world. It's not how we end, right? It's not how we hope to end with people. It's not, we're not looking for it, but we shouldn't be surprised when it does happen. God's people ought to begin in this kind of a a mentality. Now, uh, the second thing I would say is this Do you think uh, people find you dangerous in the same way that Pharaoh finds the, the Israelites dangerous? Right. Uh, do, do people think of you as belonging to a certain ideology or a political party or a certain stance on, I don't, government, whatever? Like, I don't know what it would be for you, but the point that this passage makes is that they were not beholden to anyone. Right. And that scared Pharaoh. No matter what allegiance, no matter what treaties they signed with Pharaoh, at the end of the day, if it came down to it between their God, if it came down to it between the Israelites being God's people, and it came down between them and Pharaoh, they would pick God. Right. They would do whatever was costly for them to gain, to keep that allegiance. Uh, If people, you know, if people can guess where you stand on basically everything, right? If you're, if you are beholden to something other than how God has asked you to live and how he uh, has made the world, then I would say, right, like the truth is you're more, uh, you're more like the Egyptians than you are the Israelites, right? If people, if, if people look at you and see first, you know, somebody who is pro, you know, I don't know, teachers, guns, uh, abortion, what, like you name whatever hot topic issue, if that's the thing you're known about and not God, then your allegiance really fundamentally isn't with the creator. Right? I'm not saying that any of those things are bad or good. What I'm saying is ultimately we are not tied to any particular way of addressing things. We are tied to who God is. Uh, and that that means that uh, we are dangerous, 
we ought to be seen as dangerous people because we won't just go along and broker power for the sake of power. Right? Like we, we don't hoard power. We don't need it. God is, uh, you know, more powerful than any other being. We don't need it. We can give it away. This situation, right, though, uh, if this is the case, right, where we're going to come into friction and uh, see, being seen as dangerous in the sense that um, we, we are not after our own power, we are absolutely able to give it away. Um, I, I will say this, that's, that paints a grim picture, I think. Verses 12 through 14 tells us that, like, the tensions, they persist uh, in this state in Egypt. Uh, and then, because of that, things ultimately turn very grave, right, don't they? Pharaoh starts attempting a, a mass genocide via the Hebrew midwives. And this brings us to our second point that we can find freedom in the midst of oppression because God picks unlikely heroes. God picks unlikely heroes. We can take heart in the midst of oppression because God picks unlikely heroes. Look at verses 15 through 17. 15 through 17. Pharaoh crafts this plan to curtail Israelite population growth. And uh, right, he knows that working them to the bone isn't accomplishing it. Right? Uh, can't, you can't stop people from being people. Uh, so it's time to take a firmer hand, he thinks. He asks these two women, Shifra and Pua, to kill all the male Hebrew babies during delivery, right? Probably says something along the lines of like, but make it look like an accident, right? Like as soon as the baby is delivered, you need to, you need to kill it uh, so that it seems like it came out dead or something like that. Like, I don't want people to know. And the reason that it's probably that way, he doesn't say it outright, but later in a section we'll cover next week, he just full on gathers up all the babies and throw, like leaves them exposed in the Nile for crocodiles to eat. Right? He's not afraid, actually, to like, just do it himself, but he's trying on the front end to make it kind of covert. No one needs to know, but we definitely need to cut back on Israelite men. Um, hopefully, right, with the idea being once we can get rid of all the men, uh, we can marry the wives, assimilate them into the culture, or marry them with other slaves, assimilate them into the culture, and wipe out the race entirely so that they, they no longer have a national identity. Uh, that also explains, right, this also explains why he doesn't simply execute the midwives after they disobey, right? He doesn't want people to know that he made the order in the first place and also doesn't want people to know that they disobeyed the order that he gave, right? He wants it all on the down low, right? But they don't do it, do they? Look at verse 17. Look at verse 17. The midwives, uh, it says, feared God. Uh, now, uh, I will say this, a, a point about the word uh, fear that can be translated lots of ways, like no and love even. The best way uh, to explain it is probably uh, to associate with just like the – to realize that like fear is probably the strongest human impulse, right? When you're afraid of something, it becomes like the thing that you are most aware of in a given, in a given situation. Uh, I liken it to having like a peanut allergy, Right? It doesn't mean that like the peanut itself is bad. Like you don't go like, oh, peanuts are evil, right? It's, it's that like if you have a peanut allergy, your life kind of starts to revolve a little bit around not eating peanuts, not being around peanuts. I don't know if you guys have ever been friends with somebody who has like a very severe allergy where it's like if they were to open like a – like if I were to open some planter's nuts in this room and you, they were standing at the back, like they could go in anaphylactic shock. 
But if you've ever been around one of those people, they are very aware all the time about the presence of nuts. Like, they're like, is that nuts? Like, they can smell it from like a mile away. You know what I mean? Like, those, uh, I say that because uh, it doesn't, like, I don't think any of those people are like afraid of a peanut. Like, they don't think that the peanuts are like evil. But they have, they have actually like kind of oriented their lives around it. It decides what kind of desserts they're going to eat, what kind of restaurants they can go to, like those kinds of things, right? They're not bad in themselves, but it can't be ignored in any facet of life. Now, it's worth considering for a moment, like, you know, who has God drafted on his side of things here, right? These, these fearful midwives, these people who are centered around God. Who, who, did he, who are these people, well, also, uh, by way of history, um, midwives, typically if you have this profession, it's because you can't have children of your own, right? So what ends up happening is you can't have children of your own, so uh, you either get divorced or you never got married, and you end up spending your whole life actually just serving other people who can get married. You own no property. You have no like real safety net. The reason you entered into this work is so that you can make some amount of money and subsist, but uh, it's kind of like a safeguard. It's like a social safety net, like an ancient version of this, that you can always just go be a midwife, and so that way you won't die of hunger, right? But the truth is that, like, um, in a society where, like, a woman's value, and that for the record, this is describing, not prescribing. The Bible is not saying that women only have value in having babies, but it is saying that in that culture, right, where... Uh, more humans, right, just to work the farm means more, like, ability to gain wealth and to move up and to, uh, you know, have peace and security on earth. And so having children for a woman is the most prized thing that you can do. And these women are completely, in this society, worthless. They're completely worthless because they cannot give society what it most craves and what, what it most needs. They can't trade in the currency that they know that every other woman is trading in. And uh, God picks these women to, uh, to deliver his people. He picks these two people to be heroes. Uh, to be clear, right, in verse 21, uh, this is why he re- rewards them and gives them families is because uh, he loves their obedience and uh, I, I will say this too. Um, it says, because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Uh, this is not saying that like, because they did a thing, they earned God's favor. It's saying they feared God and they did this thing. And uh, because they already knew God, because God already loved them, they did this thing. And God uh, worked through it and gave them families even, right? Uh, what, has, what this tells us is that God delights in bringing outsiders and lowlifes and nobodies into his fold, onto his team, right? He loves to use them for their good and his glory. Uh, for whatever reason, God loves using broken people. He doesn't, he doesn't want to go with Pharaoh. He goes with, you know, these two women who by all accounts to everyone else wouldn't be worth anything. Um, he loves to pick them and, and use them to bring about his purposes. Uh, there's a violin. Uh, this is like two years ago that this happened. But there's a violin that was made by uh, Stradivari, which is like a very famous uh, violin maker. Um, he made lots of instruments, but violins are the, the you know, primo. Out of like a certain like oak tree in uh, like Bavaria. And I, I can't even explain all the things that go into it. And like 
these trees like have died off and all this stuff. Well, one went to auction a couple of years ago and sold for $16 million for a violin. Uh, and uh, it's called, it has a name. Like this is the thing. The violin has a name because it's so like rare and amazing. The View Temps Guarneri Violin uh, sold for $16 million. And uh, here's, here's what God essentially does in this story and also elsewhere in the Bible. Uh, God takes, like, essentially the way that God thinks about how to accomplish his plan and how to, like, redeem the earth and make beauty is that he takes, like, that Stradivarius violin and he hands it to, like, an ape, like a wild gorilla. And he's like, I think that you can make beautiful music with this. I, I trust you. And the thing is, that doesn't make any sense, right? If I was like, if, what if the guy had bought the $16 million violin and then was like, I know the perfect person to play this and then like unveiled an ape and just threw it in there. People would, not, you know what I mean? Like you can just see like people like screaming, like, please don't do this. What have you done, right? Um, I'll just say that this is, this is how God works, right? Paul persecutes the church, like even stands over a, a stoning of a man who uh, died for Jesus, a uh, woman at the well in John 4 who has five husbands and is on her sixth. Um, uh, Peter uh, doubted uh, Jesus all the time. James and John were so arrogant that they thought that they should be number one and two in the kingdom of heaven. Uh, right? Like all these people in the Bible are you know, messed up, screwed up individuals. Moses is going to kill a guy and God's going to call him in the next chapter. <laughs> right? He's going to commit murder. Um, even Jesus, I would say, is from Nazareth, right? Uh, born in a stable in Bethlehem. And Nazareth, like, is so, like, off the beaten path and so lowly and so on the outcasts of anybody's thought that in John 1, when Nathaniel, when Philip tells Nathaniel that they should go meet Jesus of Nazareth, uh, Nathaniel replies, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Right? It would be like if, you know, you came from Milwaukee. Um, <laughs> like, anything good come out of there? Um, I can say that I'm, I'm here. I'm here. I'm with you. Uh, right. Uh, you know, you might, I, I say this because like, if you're here tonight, you might be thinking, Nick, this is all well and good that like God cares and that we, you know, maybe I, I could, uh, live a life where, where I fear him and, and I know God and all this stuff. But like, you understand, like God doesn't want that. Like God, God would never use me in that way. God doesn't care about me. Um, like you don't know what I believe. You don't know what I believe. You don't know what I've done. You don't know what I've said. You don't know uh, the, the faults that I have. I'm too introverted. I'm too extroverted. I'm too, you know, I, I'm too ugly. I'm too cool. I'm too uncool for God to use me. And what I would say is that like God can use anybody <coughs> and actually delights to go to the person who is the least useful <laughs> And make something of them. He longs to build us up and to care for us and to make something out of nothing. Right? Uh, Hercules, uh, famously, the song's like Zero to Hero. You know that song? Uh, if you didn't watch Hercules, good. Uh, it's a ripoff of this story. Um, just kidding. It's not. But like sort of. Um, right? The OG Hercules were, were Shifra and Pua. And you can't convince me otherwise. Right? Um, Right, so we, uh, I say that all to say that we can find freedom in the midst of oppression because God picks zeros to be heroes. Now, if he does that and, you know, he's giving Stradivari to apes, 
uh, to do his bidding, right? If he really does believe in us, care for us while we are broken and sinful, then like, uh, how does he get the music to be played? That's the next question, right? If you hand the ape the Stradivarius, how does he like accomplish what he's looking for, right? An ape can't play a symphony. Well, this brings us to our third point. Uh, We can find freedom in the midst of oppression because God's plans can't be thwarted. Look at me at verses 20 through 21. 20 through 21. Surprisingly, both here and in verse 12, it's not that the people grow and then they experience oppression, right? If you'll notice the trend here, it's actually, you think it's how it would work, that that because of what I said, that the people are, you know, dangerous and they... uh, you know, there's a lot of them, that as they grow, uh, oppression would increase. But actually what ends up happening is as oppression increases, right, God retaliates by growing them. You catch that, right? It's actually after Pharaoh cracks, cracks down on them, right, after he tries to kill them, after that, that they increase. Um, God is up to the task and he's not backing down. Uh, the way that we would expect it to work, uh, God works the opposite because he wants to show that he can bless them more than Pharaoh can hurt them, right? He can multiply them faster than Pharaoh can diminish them. He can love them more than the world can hate them. God is working, right, in the midst of injustice behind the scenes, right, uh, yeah, you can't see him. He, for the record, like God doesn't show up in any of this story, like in like bodily form, like doing anything. But that doesn't mean that he's not clearly and definitively in the story, helping people, navigating things. His plan can't be thwarted. And of course, right, this is most true in Jesus. Right, Romans eight thirty two tells us that he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. God didn't spare his own son. He was willing to even give up Jesus. How will he also not with him graciously give us all things? Right? If, uh, if we're at a poker table, like to give an analogy, right? Uh, I don't know if you guys have ever watched the, the first Daniel Craig James Bond, Casino Royale. But he like ends up getting taken and uh, the U.S. agent has to like front him the chips. He's playing with someone else's money. What I'm saying is that we are all, if you're in Christ, you are playing with someone else's money. That like that that everything that happens to you, that everything that you you spend your time and energy on in this life, that God has already invested more in that than you can. Right? That God did not spare his own son. He's already given him for you. How will he not be on your side when you experience hardship and oppression? Right? Some of y'all might be going through things that are that are way harder than like I, I've been spiritualizing some of this, right? That it's like, the, like, to be clear, when we are first talking about this situation with oppression, like, these are people who are actually enslaved, right? Like, I don't want to make light of the fact that um, just, just as in, like, chattel slavery in the American South, right, these people did not have a choice about whether or not they wanted to be slaved, and it was in perpetuity. Uh, it's an evil, and it's horrible, and yet God is in their midst working, Right? You might have some really hard things going on. Right, That's, You might hear me talking about like being insecure and you're like, I wish that insecurity was my biggest problem. You don't understand what's been done to me. You don't understand who's hurt me and how they've hurt me. 
And if you did, you wouldn't think that God was there. You wouldn't think he was at work. And what I'm telling you is that when you can't see him, he's actually most at work. When you can't see him, he's always there behind the scenes. And we know that not because of some pie in the sky, not because I'm telling it to you, not because I want to believe it, but because this is how God works. It's how he works, not just with the Egypt, not just in this Egyptian moment, not just in, you know, David's life or Moses's life or anybody in the Old Testament, but he even works this way with his own son, uh, giving him up to death and then turning it into a resurrection so that all of us might live. Nothing can thwart his plan. Yes, we can find freedom in the midst of oppression, in the midst of hardship, because God's people start oppressed that God picks unlikely heroes and he's, his plans cannot be thwarted. Let's pray.